Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Zach Dovner is corporate counsel and a deal analyst on Eastham Capital's acquisition team. Eastham Capital is a real estate private equity firm that acquires multifamily communities across the country. Zach has been with Eastham Capital since 2012 and has assisted in the acquisition of over $1 billion worth of multifamily real estate during his career. Zach will talk about the multifamily investment market and help us learn about what it is like to work at a real estate private equity firm. Zach, thanks for joining us today. We're really glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Do you serve on the acquisition team for Eastham Capital? Can you please explain to our listeners what a real estate private equity firm does and the kind of investments they pursue? So in terms of what a real estate private equity firm does, we raise funds from investors and then invest those funds in multifamily apartments all across the country. Right now, we own roughly 10,000 units and we're investing a $215 million fund. We have a very specific fund structure in regards to how we invest in deals. So we have five rules in regards to how we invest in deals. One, we only invest with groups who have an excellent track record in the market they're investing in. Two, we only invest with groups who put skin in the game. Three, the groups that we partner with must self-manage. Four, we're going to get to this later on. We like to say that we fix properties, not neighborhoods. And five, we're looking to double our money over the life of the investment. If we can find investments that fit those five rules, that'd be great, and we can make the investment. Eastham's Capital mentioned that the firm invests in B and C properties in A and B locations. For our listeners that don't know, can you elaborate on this investment strategy? Well, sure. I would relate it to buying a single-family home, for example. You don't want to buy the nicest home in the neighborhood. We like to say that we fix properties, not neighborhoods. If we're going to buy a deal, again, the goal is to fix the, the property. It'd be much tougher to, to fix the neighborhood. So that's pretty much the strategy. And we want to be investing in markets as well that are growing, that have some type of population growth or employment growth. We're going to, if we fix the property, for example, if we fix the C property in the B market, maybe we can move that property to a B property in a B market. Would the firm be considered a limited partner investor in these investments? We would be. So we would be a purely limited partner. We would be very hands-off, and we would let the general partner drive the day-to-day management. We would just be the passive investor. So can you explain the role of the sponsor in a joint venture real estate acquisition? So the sponsor would also be called the general partner in the deal. And they would be running the day-to-day operations in the deal. For example, they would be managing the the deal from day one. They would be dealing with the tenants. They would be dealing with the renovations. They usually drive the debt decisions. We're more hands-off and see monthly reports, for example. And here at Eastham Capital, we're pretty hands-off unless we see there's a problem at the property. 
How does a firm like Estam incentivize the sponsor to execute the business plan? So the sponsor provides a budget at the beginning of each year, and then they'll provide monthly reports. So if the sponsor at all is not hitting their numbers, again, we'll get involved. But the way the sponsors really incentivize is through a waterfall structure. They have to hit certain hurdles, and if they hit over the hurdles, they are going to earn a bonus. And each deal and each sponsor that we have has a unique bonus and preferred return, for example. How much equity does ESNAM invest into each transaction? So it's grown. So when I started ESNAM Capital roughly seven and a half years ago, we used to write checks one to five million dollars, but now we're investing a two hundred and fifteen million dollar fund. We're writing checks right now one to ten million dollars, but our goal is in two thousand twenty to raise a new fund. And my guess is by then we'll be writing checks anywhere from one to fifteen million dollars. Right now you're capped at a thirty million dollar acquisition price, is that correct? That's what I read. Something like that, maybe 30 or $35 million. And that's on a per deal basis. So if we buy a portfolio, we can, of course, go higher than that as well. With the current fund that we're investing, we've never done new construction. But I think with this new fund, my guess is we'll start entertaining new construction. So in Eastam's deals, is the sponsor solely the deal provider or does Eastam require a co-investment from the sponsor? So East Ham Capital does require a co-investment. We do require skin in the game. That way, if the deal is great, we can all sip champagne together. But if the deal starts sinking, we all sink together as well. That way, all the interests are aligned. And we want to see material skin in the game from the sponsor as well. And we do understand that some sponsors have more money than other sponsors. So let's say someone has 500 units. For example, they don't have as much money as someone who owns 20,000 units. So it has to be true, meaningful skin in the game from that sponsor. But again, everyone has a different level of meaningful skin in the game. How much does a sponsor typically put in percentage-wise equity on the deal? Or does that vary? We've done 80-20 splits where we put in 80% of the money and the sponsor puts in 20%. We've done 90% deals where the sponsors put in 10%. We've also done deals where we've put in 51% and the sponsors put in 49%. Again, it, it varies on the deal. I will say here at ECM Capital, we have to have major decision rights. So that means we have to have at least 51% of the equity in the deal. and We have to hold the major decision rights, such as the buy-sell rights and the refinance rights as well. So it sounds like the sponsor handles the property management. Who handles the asset management? So we have an asset manager here internally. Her name is Olga. She's been here for about five years now. And she reviews monthly reports from our sponsors. So you're in Boca and your properties are all over the Southeast, Texas, Georgia, etc. So there must be some sort of trust involved with the sponsors. But what kind of procedures does your asset management team have in place to make sure the sponsor is doing their job? So we do get annual budgets yearly that our asset manager reviews, and she gets monthly reports. And if they are not hitting their budgeted numbers, she'll hop on a phone call and discuss some of the problems they're having at the property. Usually, we're pretty hands-off. For example, 
if there's a line item on there that maybe two or three percent off, we're not going to make a big fuss about it. You know, maybe that month they spent a little more money on the landscaping, for example, and we're not going to give sponsors a tough time about that. But if something's off by 15 or 20 percent, we'll certainly reach out and try to figure out what's going on. Now, working with the sponsors, let's say they have an unanticipated expense. Do they eventually start calling you and say, hey, guys, just so you know, this is going to be on the report? We certainly would hope so. I mean, look, it's a marriage. So you want to be able to have trust. You would hope that your partner, if something's going to be materially wrong, would give you a heads up. Hey, there was a fire and there were seven or eight down units. And you always want to hear the bad news first and the good news later on. So I've imagined you dealt with a lot of sponsors during your career. Are there any red flags that stick out while screening a potential sponsor? Yes, absolutely. So you got to remember in my shoes, are you familiar with the show Shark Tank? Yes, very familiar. So I'm pretty much the shark and there's fishes pitching me deals. And there's nothing more that drives me crazy when a fish is pitching me a deal and the numbers make sense. The numbers on a deal are the easy part. The underwriting is the easy part. Really, the analytics of the deal, I would argue, are the easy part. The hard part is really finding the right sponsor. And it bothers me when the numbers really make sense. And then we start vetting these sponsors and we start calling their properties. And the property managers do not pick up the phone. That is the biggest red flag. We really put a premium on investing with excellent owner operators. And if there's property managers not picking up the phone, then it's a major red flag, and we're not going to commit to you one to ten million dollars. It's happened quite a few times. I can think of two times off the top of my head where the numbers made sense, locations made sense. We were really excited, and we start calling the properties, and no one's picking up the phone. It's really simple to pick up the phone and to sell a unit. If we're going to underwrite deals and push rent three or four to five percent, we have to have excellent customer service. So you kind of touched on this, but what are some other things that Eastham looks for when meeting a new sponsor? So we are extremely picky. So in my time, we've talked to well over a few thousand owner-operators, and we've only invested with roughly 14. And again, we're looking for people who are entrepreneurial, who are aggressive, who really take pride in their ownership, and their self-management. So let's talk about new deals. A sponsor approaches you with a new multifamily investment opportunity. What kind of data or projection do you like to see from a sponsor pitching a new deal? So the way it works is someone will typically email us or call us and, and pitch us the deal. And they'll send us a performa, a rent roll, a T12, and usually we'll have an introductory phone call on the deal, kind of a, a quick overview phone call. And then what we'll do is we'll input it into our database. We use Salesforce. We'll put the high-level metrics in there. We'll write some internal notes. And if the deal looks interesting, we'll internally underwrite the deal and we'll compare it to your underwriting. And we'll try to figure out if we actually believe your underwriting or not. We'll, we'll, we'll tear apart your rent roll. We'll tear apart your trailing 12. And we'll make our own projections. And then if our projections match up and we're happy, we'll get on a second phone call and we'll ask a lot of detailed questions about your underwriting. 
so going back to the crux of your question, if someone sends us an underwriting, a trailing 12 months, and a rent roll is the start. So you'd mentioned that you'd seen a lot of deals come across your desk. What are the key metrics that you use to quickly size up the deal just to see if it's even worth you guys underwriting? So we have our own way of underwriting deals. I don't want to give away the secret sauce, but we put a lot of emphasis on the rent versus the purchase price. What steps do you take to make sure that you're getting the best and most accurate information? So again, we re-underwrite every single deal that we are going to invest in. So we'll stress the assumptions. We believe the assumption. For example, I got a deal in recently that was projecting roughly $10,000 a door in renovation, and they were underwriting 95% occupancy day one. If you're going to be putting in $10,000 a door renovation, that takes a lot of work. You're certainly going to have to retenant some of the property. Certainly do not believe that the property will be 95% occupied day one. Did not make sense. We also have other outside factors. We have a Yardy matrix. We have some other third-party reports that we use as well to make sure we're getting the best information possible. We also have an extensive database as well. We've logged every deal in my seven and a half years here. So I can go back to our database and say, hey, is this market really a six-cap market or a seven-cap market? What are some common value-add strategies in the apartment sector? Management. So again, we like to invest with the premium owner-operators across the country. So if we can put in, we think, our better property managers and a better property management system, that is the biggest value-add to a deal. So not giving away the sauce again, what's the most unique value-add strategy you've seen from a sponsor? There is a sponsor that we've worked with in the past who has actually gone into a community and has helped tutor some of the kids who live on site. I think that's a pretty cool value-add strategy. So walk me through the most exciting deal that you've worked on. So we actually just bought a portfolio outside of Atlanta that I cannot be more excited about. The deal was totally undermanaged. So I actually saw the deal last week. I went to the deal last week. And you drive in, and the welcome flags when you drive in are all ripped. I mean, who would ever want to live in a community where the welcome flags are ripped as you drive in? The properties are a total mess. The owner was an out-of-country owner who did not know what they were doing, and there's so much low-hanging fruit. We could not be any more excited about it. And also, the pools are not kept up. The pavement's terrible. There's about 40 or 50 down units, which could be easily put back online. There's just a lot of low-hanging fruit that, again, we couldn't be any more excited about it. So that's almost 10% of the units are offline right now? Correct. And actually, the unique story is, is that these most of these 40 or 50 units are actually already renovated. They're not up to code. So all we have to do is just bring them up to code, and they'll be back online in about 30 or 40 days. Oh my that's God. mismanagement. So you said Atlanta. I kind of touched on the states. What other markets does East Ham want to be invested in and what attracts you to those markets? So in terms of where we like to invest, we're location agnostic. We'll go anywhere where we can potentially double our money over the life of the investment. With that said, recently, we've been taking a hard look at the real estate taxes on the property. For example, I saw a property in San Antonio, Texas, 
that was built in the 90s, and the taxes on that property were $3,000 per unit per year. I saw another deal in North Carolina, also built in the 1990s, where the taxes were 900 bucks per unit per year. So on that one variable, the taxes are much more attractive in a state like North Carolina than Texas on the real estate property taxes side. So what kind of cap rates are you seeing in the Southeast and the Midwest? So we don't buy on cap rates, we sell on cap rates. With that said, if I had to ballpark it, we typically are more in the five or six up rate cap rates. We're not buying the threes and fours. It's more like the five and sixes. Analyst roles at real estate private equity firms are tough to come by. How'd you get your foot in the door? It was networking. So I had a family member who met one of the principals here. I had just graduated from law school and was looking to work at a big law firm. I met with Eric Silverman, my director, and he said to me, I'm going to give your name to a bunch of law firms. And he ended up calling me a few weeks later after our first initial meeting. He goes, you know what, Zach, why don't you come work for us as in-house counsel slash acquisitions? I said, I don't really know too much about real estate acquisitions. He said, come on board. We'll teach you the game. And I've been here for seven and a half years and, and couldn't be happier. So, Zach, the analyst role is essential in the underwriting process. And it comes with a lot of responsibilities. In your bio, we read that you closed over a billion dollars worth of transactions. Did you find it stressful in the beginning? And how did you handle the stress? I think any new job is stressful. But I think the, the, the great thing is, is anything is learnable, right? So my background really is, I have a legal background. I was an economics minor in college, but that doesn't really help too much. But I worked really hard, not really having an extensive Excel background. Would work late hours, would look at the weekends, how to really underwrite deals, ask a ton of questions, even if they were the quote-unquote stupid questions. Always ask questions. And just over time with practice and learning, I think, again, anything is learnable. And I think today, I'm not great at Excel, but I'm not bad at it either. And I would say this too, is I work with two very smart individuals. I work with Matt Rosenthal and Eric Silverman. I consider them the smartest people I know. And I did not go to Harvard or I did not go to an Ivy League school. I worked with these guys for seven years. And I feel like that gives me better credentials than anyone else. So what was the most challenging part of picking up the job? As discussed earlier, like the show Shark Tank, people are pitching me deals and, and pitching us deals. And the hard part is, is when someone that you like and that you respect is pitching you a deal they really believe in and really love, and you have to say no to them. Because they are, they're looking for money. They're really trying their hardest to really pitch you on the deal. And you're pretty much breaking their heart. So although it's business, I think it's good to have some feeling and some emotion, which I have. And it's tough to to say no to someone. They're pouring their heart out to you, looking for this one to $10 million. They really believe in their business plan. And to say no, it's sometimes it's tough to do. So that's the hardest part. So what is one piece of advice you would have for a new analyst? It's enthusiasm. And when someone gives you a job, give it all your best, give it all your enthusiasm that you can give it. I remember when I started here, I was given the task of reviewing, I think about four or 5,000 different groups going to the NMBC conference. And I said, why am I going to review these four or 5,000 companies? 
this seems like a real tedious project. It's going to take me a few months to do. And I was kind of bummed out, but I did the project with enthusiasm. But now I know a lot of who these four or 5,000 groups are. And so when someone mentions a random group, I'll have some knowledge about them. So my advice to someone starting is to take the jobs at first with stride, do jobs with enthusiasm with a smile on your face, and give it your best. How did you transition from being the team's analyst to managing an analyst? It's tough work. I think the best way to manage someone is just to be honest. Is say, hey, I, I have to get this work done. This is why it needs to get done. And that's the best way of management. So let's talk about funds. Have you ever been able to get involved with the fundraising side of the business? Yeah. So one of the partners here, Eric Silverman, is mostly involved on the fundraising process. With that said, we'll help him with the fundraising process. So what's actually funny about the fundraising process is more on the investment side is we'll call groups typically and say, hey, look, I'm East Ham Capital. We're looking to place one to $10 million of equity checks. This is what I'm calling sponsors. And I'll get calls back from the presidents of their company. They say, oh, you guys write checks for one to $10 million. That's amazing. Then on the fundraising side, when we're trying to raise money from potential investors, I say for every 100 calls I make, I get one phone call back. So my goal when we are fundraising, I will make some cold calls. And most of these cold calls are actually to Aeroflowman's connections through the years. But it's much tougher to fundraise than to invest the money. So, Zach, we talked about enthusiasm. Is it a little bit difficult making 100 phone calls to stay enthused and only getting one back? You have to have the enthusiasm. You have to just keep smiling and dialing is what we say here. You have to have the enthusiasm for the first call all the way to the 100th call. If you one great phone call, then it was totally worth it. What does Eastem's typical investor look like? Is it an individual, a family office, maybe an institution? I would say the average investor is an individual. It's a high net worth individual who usually invests in our fund. The average investor is typically half a million dollars. And that money is called down over time as we invest in the properties. Okay, so they're just not writing a million dollars and it goes into one, it kind of just goes into one. No, and with our fifth fund, it was a four-year call-down period, which I think is going to be called down about over three years. You touched on this. What returns does ESOM try to deliver to their investors? Didn't you say they try to double it? Over yeah, we're trying to double. I think to the best of our ability, we're trying our best to double our investors' money over the life of the investment. That's the goal. What is the investment horizon for ESAM deals, and when can investors expect to see their money back? So it's a 10-year investment fund, and every fund is unique and different. For example, with our third fund, we started that in 2012, and the goal for that fund is to be wrapped up, I believe, sometime in 2020. So that'll be an eight-year fund. It's really a 10-year investment fund. So that's really the life of the fund. And again, our goal is to double our money over the life of the investment. So we noticed that the phrase, we fix properties, not neighborhoods, was trademarked on Eastham's site. What was the thought behind trademarking this phrase? And how challenging was the trademark process? So the trademark process was actually really quite easy. So I think I got into this earlier. My background is I was an attorney or graduate of law school, passed the bar exam and started working here, here at Eastham Capital. The evolution of why we trademarked, I was actually on a phone call back in 2014, 
And I said, we fix properties, not neighborhoods. And the individual I was on the phone with liked that phrase so much so that he put it on his homepage of his website. Mm-hmm. So I walked into my director's office and I said, guys, you're not going to believe this. I just had this phone call earlier today. And later that day, this, our phrase is on his homepage of his website. And they said, Zach, use your legal degree, let's trademark it. I think the trademark process took about nine months or so, but it's actually pretty cool. It's a federal trademark that we own today. We're going to take this way back. What was your very first job and what lessons did you carry forward throughout your career and life? So my very first job was at Marshall's and it was a long time ago, Uh but I learned a lot about customer service. And although right now we're investing millions of dollars and back then at Marshall's, I was making, I think I was making $7 an hour. It's still the same motto. It's customer service, whether it's customer service to our investors when we raise the funds or it's customer service to our tenants when we're managing the properties, it's how we make people happy. It doesn't matter if you're making $7 an hour or you're making a few million dollars a year. It's all about customer service and making people happy, making people feel good. Zach, seriously, thanks for joining us today. How can our listeners get in touch with you to learn more about Eastam? Yeah, sure. They can email me at Zach at EastHamCapital.com. That's Z-A-C-H at EastHamCapital.com or call me 561-571-7100. I am always happy to chat real estate. So give me a call. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.